Well, as Rodney has mentioned, this is my penultimate sermon as senior pastor. It was suggested in the vestry that the last one in August will be the ultimate message. <laughs> Not sure about that. But you will, I hope, forgive me if I today focus on a familiar theme and begin with what may seem and beat you, some of you, a familiar opening introduction. Way back in March 1972, I set out for my first overseas assignment with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I was assigned to work in India. And our headquarters at that time were in Nepal and Kathmandu. And before you were sent out to do your language work, there was what was called a three-month, used to be called jungle training. But because there aren't many jungles around there, it then became known as the field training course, which was kind of to toughen you up and teach you how to live off the land. And by way of preparation, uh, the party of trainees, we set out on a series of treks in the foothills of the Himalayas. And this concluded one weekend with a visit to a place that was some 12,000 feet up where there was supposed to be a spectacular view, particularly of Mount Everest. This sounds very wonderful until you remember that Kathmandu starts at 5,000 feet, okay? Not from sea level. Well, in those days, I was the youngest and fittest of the recruits. And I found the pace at which the older members moved was considerably frustrating and slow. As I've got older, I've repented <laughs> in retrospect of my sins of impatience. So as usual, when we set out on this particular journey, there I was with the party trekking away and I set off in the front and set off at what I thought was a reasonably brisk pace up this winding mountain trek. I got my head down, my big rucksack on, and I just kept going for about 20 minutes. And then I thought, well, I better stop and wait for all the other recruits to catch me up. I waited, and I waited, and no one came. So I turned and looked back down the mountain, and there was no sight of anyone else from our party, other than a Nepali man trudging up the hill with a heavy load on his back. What was I to do? I only knew one phrase in Nepali, Ramrocha, which being roughly translated means jolly good. Unfortunately, I also knew the name of the place where we were heading on top of the mount, well, at 12,000 feet. It was a village called Nagakot. So as the man trudged up towards me, I said with a fine English interrogative accent, Nagakot, and pointed up the mountain. He seemed to respond in the affirmative, though I didn't understand the word he said, so I responded, Ramrocha and set off behind him. It was one of the hardest climbs I've ever been on. It made my previous efforts 
on the field training course seemed like a Sunday afternoon stroll. Instead of meandering around the mountain as we'd been doing, he just set up straight up. For hour after hour. And somehow, I just had to keep going. Why? Because I was lost. If I let him out of my sight, I had to keep on keeping on. Now, when Jesus Christ calls you to follow him, you soon discover it is not a Sunday afternoon stroll. It is a strenuous climb. What one verse in the New Testament describes as God's call heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So Christians are, in the words of another verse in the New Testament, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And it is a marathon, not a sprint. So today, as we look forward to the future and whatever it may hold, I want to challenge you, as I challenge myself, to keep on keeping on. And in order to help us do that, I want to focus on something a Christian leader named Paul wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. And you'll need a Bible to find it. If you don't have one, don't feel embarrassed. If you're a regular worshipper, do feel embarrassed. Uh, but if you're a visitor, there are Bibles in the pews. If you just reach round and get hold of one, we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you'll find it on page 1160. Everybody got a Bible? Page 1160. This is God's word for us today. Paul is writing to these Christians in Corinth. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident and say, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God. I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you may answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, 
and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, these are wonderful words. And I simply want to suggest to you this morning in our theme, keep on keeping on, that in these verses we can identify at least three motivating forces which kept Paul going in his ministry after all these years when he writes this and which will help us and help me to keep on keeping on. So here's number one. The first motivating force is the coming judgment of Christ. The coming judgment of Christ. As a result of his long and demanding ministry, Paul feels the limitations of his physical body, which he compares to a tent, verse 1. And this tent is tattered and worn by the elements. He is longing for a permanent replacement, what he calls an eternal house in heaven, to be clothed with a heavenly dwelling, a new resurrection body that will never wear out, so living in this tent, his physical body, he groans and longs for his heavenly dwelling. He says, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now as you go along as a Christian, even the aging process slows you down. And the longer you go, the more you realize you are living in a tent. I managed to play the last 20 minutes of the All-Stars football match against the Chapel team. Thankfully, most of them were worn out by then. But believe me, by the end of that, at 62, you realize you're living in a tent and you groan. But this is no excuse to give up, although I am giving up football. <laughs> Paul says this is no cause for complacency. Rather, he says, it is a spur to me to keep going, to keep climbing. For when my life is over, I will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for my life and my ministry. And what was true for him is true for every Christian. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here is an absolute certainty. If you're younger, you may not have thought about it a lot. If you're getting older, you'll think about it more. And if you're wise and sensible, the older you get, the more you will think about this fact. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Now the judgment seat here of Christ for the Christian is not in regard to salvation. Whether you're accepted by God and make it into his presence in heaven. That would contradict almost everything that Paul wrote elsewhere. No, this is not about salvation, for we are not saved by good works. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 to a different church in Ephesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You can't make it into heaven by your own good works. It's not about salvation, the judgment seat of Christ for the Christian, but it is about service. For Paul goes on to say, we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 that follows immediately. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When you become a Christian, God has a plan for your life. He has a work for you to do. And how you spend your life, you'll be accountable to him. At the end of our lives, we'll have to give an account before Christ, our master and judge. Look at verse 10 in it fully. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now this is surely a great motivating factor for us. You see, you may not be a Christian this morning. You may think, when I'm dead, that's it. Oblivion. I have bad news for you. God says in his word, it is appointed to man once to die and after this to face judgment. You also will face the judgment of Christ. But it is a warning for the Christian. My life on earth is limited. Therefore, I must use it wisely, knowing that one day I'll be called to give an account to the one who sees everything I do. And beyond that, sees even my motives. And who judges with absolute fairness and impartiality. Now this motivation has two elements that I think you need to keep in balance. In tension with each other. First of all, there is the desire to please him. Verse 9. He says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Think of someone that you love dearly. Or someone you know who you respect highly. And how you live your life, you think of them and you think... I want to please that person. How much more to please Christ? We don't want him to be disappointed in us when we stand before him or to be ashamed when he reviews and evaluates our lives. We want to please him because we owe him so much. But balance with this is the fear of offending him, which causes us to pause in the presence of a God who is holy and powerful. Verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord... We try to persuade men. Now, you need to keep those two things in balance. Intimacy, balance with reverence. And that should shape your life on earth, and my life, and it should shape our thinking about the time when we meet him and give an account of our lives, of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So whatever we do, we need to ask, will this please the Lord? Will this offend the Lord? I guess some of us are just pausing for a moment to think about some of the things that happened in this past week. Did that please the Lord? Or did it offend the Lord? 
when I come to give an account of this past week in July 2009 one day each one of us will stand before Christ and he will ask did you do the good works I prepared for you to do or did you pursue your own agenda and with this in mind Paul says since we know what it is to fear the Lord Paul says his focus is on the work that God has called him to do to persuade men he said knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men his particular calling was to persuade men of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and with this in mind he then moves on to a second motivating force that kept him going and will keep us going not only the coming judgment of Christ but notice secondly the compelling love of Christ look what he writes in verse 14 he says, for Christ's love compels us. You see, our primary motivation as Christians, what starts us off as Christians and keeps us going, is love. It is not the love that we have for God. It doesn't originate with us. By nature, we do not love God and his word and his laws. Rather, the Bible describes us as God's enemies. Yet we experience God's love for us. Here's Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, chapter 5. You see, he says, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you're a Christian, you know what that's about. For some of us, it's a big shock. To discover that God who knows us actually loves us. Despite what he knows about us. The Christian is someone who can say, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And when we are awakened to that love and realize God's love for us, we are enabled to respond to that love in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God does something even more remarkable. We experience not only his love for us, but his love in us. In that same chapter in Romans 5, Paul puts it like this. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When you become a Christian, you respond to God's love. We love him because he first loved us. And God begins to pour into your heart by the Holy Spirit, into your life, a great love for God, a great love for his word, his laws, a great love for his people. Christ's love comes to reside within us, to motivate us, and something else remarkable happens then. Others begin to experience God's love through us. Look again at verse 14. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, that's why becoming a Christian is not some self-contained self-satisfaction. Rather, it leads to a self-sacrificing life of love. There is nothing more deadly than trying to serve Christ out of a sense of duty alone. There is nothing more helpless than trying to serve Christ in your own strength. But notice what our verse says. It does not say the love of Christ inspires us, though it should. No, the verse offers far more. It says the love of Christ compels us. The, word, the Greek word translated compel is an interesting word. It means to hold something together by pressure and so to shape it or force it into a certain direction. Uh, think of a river 
that's meandering around and then you come to a part where there is a rocky gorge on either side and the river narrows down and suddenly if you're in a boat in there or you throw something in the water it's compelled, it's propelled in a certain direction now God's loveliness, says Paul, compels us it keeps us going, it drives us we are urged on, forced on, driven on to share God's love with others empowered to share God's love with others It is his love that channels our lives into lives of sacrificial service like that of his son, Jesus Christ. But what I want to say to you, as I say to myself, this is not a once-for-all experience. We need fresh daily supplies of that love if we're to keep on going and not become discouraged when the going gets tough. When we lived in Nigeria, we had a large car battery in our mud-walled house. We used it to run a little typewriter printer. This is kind of old technology. And it illuminated several tube lights in our house. The Paramount Chief used to live and demonstrate to all his visitors, these foreigners who had this wonderful light in the mud-house. But if you just left the battery to itself, you'll know with a car battery, if you've ever left your lights on at night in your car, left to its own devices, ran down pretty quickly it needed charging up but I discovered when I went to Nigeria which is why they call me Gadget Granger I discovered uh, the first solar panels came out you know the old solar panels with the photoelectric cells it was about this big and that wide and I took it in the, on the plane with me and we got this photoelectric cell this, this solar panel and we screwed it to the tin roof of our house in Nigeria and then you ran a wire down with a diode into the battery and when the sun I don't ask me how it works but it did the sun beats down on the, on the solar panel and it charged up the battery every day we never needed to charge the battery if it was cheap electricity we might all be using it soon the way we're going but the problem is we haven't got the sunshine but never mind Now, it's a good illustration, I think, of God's love in us. You see, we need constant exposure to the sunshine of God's love. Maybe you're a discouraged Christian this morning. Maybe you've had it up to here, even with Christians in churches, maybe especially with Christians in churches. And you think, I I just had enough of this. You need a fresh exposure to God's love. Because when that happens, it will create fresh reserves of love for others so you can keep going. If you withdraw from it, you say, I've had enough of church and Christians. You know something? You stop coming. You stop coming to church. And you know what happens? Your love for Christ just withers and dies. It's like, you know, covering the solar panel. Or taking it off the roof and putting it inside the house. You've got to be exposed to the sunshine of God's love. You see, we need that love. When we counter situations that are humanly impossible to bear. We need that love when we face criticisms from people that we can't humanly forgive. We need that love, says Paul, when people think we're out of our minds. Fools for Christ. Every day needs fresh supplies of love if we're to go on and not give up. That's the only reason I've survived 17 years in Charlotte Chapel. It's not your problem. It's my problem. Without that, you give up and do something else. So the essential requirement, as Jesus told his followers before he left them and went to heaven, is keep staying in love. He said, as the Father has loved me, 
So I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Maybe this morning you need a fresh experience of God's love in Christ. A fresh experience of his Holy Spirit pouring into your life the love that you don't naturally have which can then be expressed to other people and will keep you motivated, keep you climbing the mountain. But can we hope for any real and lasting good in the lives of those among whom we work? Does our love have any content? Does it have any real power? That leads to the third motivating force which drives Paul on and will enable us to keep going. The coming judgment of Christ, the compelling love of Christ, and notice thirdly and finally, the reconciling work of Christ. You see, the hardest situations we face in Christian ministry are hard people. Uh, when I first came to Charlotte Chapel, those who have persisted over these 17 years will remember at the first Bible school we used to run, I began by running a series on personal evangelism. And I got everyone to fill in the questionnaire. It wasn't quite the normal thing you did on the Thursday Bible school, but uh, people stayed with me, fortunately. And the questionnaire, I'll tell you what the first two questions were, all right? Question one was, who is the person I would most love to become a Christian? Secondly, who is the person I know whom I believe is the least likely person ever to become a Christian? Most people put the same person. Often a family member, a friend, the humanly impossible person. As I said that, you thought of somebody, almost certainly, if you're a Christian. But for Paul, there were no such people. He says, if there had been, I was one of them. I used to think of Christ just as a normal human being. From a worldly point of view, just an ordinary human being. But now he understands who Christ is and the amazing work that Christ did when he died on the cross. Verse 21 is one of the great verses of the New Testament. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is he saying? He's saying God took the initiative in the person of his son by dying on a cross to make us God's friends, to reconcile the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And now he's entrusted that message to others. Those who've received the message of reconciliation to become messengers of reconciliation. And so Paul says, if Christ died for us, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again, verse 15. And Paul extends that obligation to a privilege. He says it's the Christian's calling, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Some of you will know we visited Papua New Guinea a few years ago for a big reception. And I met the British ambassador there. Nice guy. I was tempted later, I should have said to him, nice to meet someone in the same line of business. I'm an ambassador too. I didn't say it, of course. But, uh, but it is true that if we belong to Christ, if you are a Christian, no matter the youngest Christian here, you are an ambassador for Christ as you go out of here. You are Christ's ambassadors. You have a far greater calling than serving an earthly king or country. You don't represent yourself, but you represent the King of Kings. And you don't give your own opinion, you give his opinion. You say what he says. And the message of the King to all is, be reconciled to God. If you are not a Christian here this morning, I say to you as an ambassador, but if you sit next to a Christian who's an ambassador, they should say the same thing to you. I say to you, 
Be reconciled to God. Get right with God before it's too late and you face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that should then motivate us in our dealings with people, however hard and unresponsive they may be, because our conviction is reconciliation is offered to all and effective to all who by grace respond to God's offer. So this is the Christian's conviction. Verse 17, another great verse, it's a great chapter. This. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. Now, let me just pause again and ask you, do you believe that? Is there someone you've excluded from the list of anyone? Is anyone too hard? See, God delights in taking impossible people like Paul and making him or her a new creation. Uh, let me share something personally, and I have his permission to share it. Uh, just an encouragement to parents, because when I said that difficult person, some of you thought of your kids, didn't you? Um, some of you will know that our son Ben came with us to Charlotte Chapel 17 years ago. When he reached the age of 18, he stopped going to Charlotte Chapel. Seven years, he never came. Past some. Once a year he came for the Christmas Day service. Didn't go off the rails, but he just stopped coming. And I was baptizing your children. My son was a prodigal. When he reached 25, he wanted to go to Camp America to serve on one of the camps there. And we just prayed he would go to a Christian camp. Because of his love of falconry and animals, they sent him to a nature camp. So we prayed and said, Lord, put him in touch with a Christian. When he'd been there about six weeks, we just got a quick email saying, I'm here, I'll tell you more later, and nothing happened. You know, it's like with teenage boys. Oh, boys in their 20s. I came home one day, and Nita said, Ben's been on the phone. There's good news and bad news. So I said, give me the good news. He's been going to church every week. Wow, thank you, Lord. What's the bad news? He's been going to the Mormon tabernacle with the person he met. A bit later on, he phoned me. He said, Dad, I've been going to the Mormon tabernacle every week. He said, you taught me to think for myself, and I've been exploring and looking at what they believe, and it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems ridiculous. And he said, I've been coming, going every week to the Mormon tabernacle, and he said, this is a boy who's not been to church seven years. He said, there's no power in the preaching. A couple of weeks later, he emailed and said, Thank you, Mum and Dad, for praying for me. I've come back to the Lord. He's baptized in this church. Our faith wasn't great. You Christian parents, hang in there. Pray for the prodigals. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That motivates us to keep on keeping on, to keep on proclaiming, to keep on serving the King. If we are his ambassadors, he's given us all the resources of his kingdom to help us. And one day, unexpectedly, who knows when, the ambassador will be recalled and we come full circle as the ambassador is recalled to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ for his ambassadorship, if that's the right word. I'm nearly finished. I always say this and then I'll go in a lot longer, but anyway... I'm sure you want to know what happened about my climb to Nagakot. 
Well, we climbed and we climbed and I just hung in there, believe me, behind this Nepali going up this mountain like a mountain goat with a load twice as heavy as mine. I remember we stopped briefly by a village and we leaned against a wall with our backs packed still on and a woman came out with a load, what's the English word, a load, a brass water pot full of water and he opened his mouth like this and she just poured it straight in his mouth. I thought, forget the amoeba, I'm doing the same thing. So, I mean, I went out and she poured water down my throat as well. Then we set off again and we climbed and we climbed. Finally, we mounted a ridge and my guide paused and he pointed ahead and he said the magic word, Nagakot. And I said, Ramrocha. <laughs> and there, beyond and above the village, pointing to the clouds with their incredible snow-capped peaks of the Himalayas, with Everest rising above the rest. It was worth it all. Especially when the rest of the party arrived a few hours later, by which time the clouds had moved in and nobody else saw a mountain the whole weekend. <laughs> Some years ago, I think I've shared this before with you, but it's worth saying again, Nietzsche and I ministered at a Wycliffe conference for workers in very difficult locations. I won't even tell you where because of security reasons. But it was the hardest situation for the women in the group because their personal freedoms were totally restricted by the culture that they lived in. And they sacrificed that for the sake of Christ. And I was speaking on 2 Corinthians. And at the end, I said, let's just pause and spend time just reflecting what God has said to us. And we just, there was a long silence. And then one of the women just began to sing out a chorus that we sang when I was younger. We don't sing it nowadays, but we're going to have a try in a minute. If you want to move down there, you're going to play it in a minute. Thank you, Don Elizabeth. And the old folk will know this. The younger ones will pick it up, all right? It's a great song. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. So keep on keeping on. If you've never started, start today. Be reconciled to God. For it will be worth it all when we hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we receive new and lasting bodies.